Please sit comfortably. So if my memory is correct, this is the last full day of session. We have one more day to go tomorrow. My sense of time gets a bit wobbly as we go through. And um, usually what I do on this last day, which is the last Dharma talk I give, is try to speak to something um, about how we apply this practice in our everyday life when we go out of the the sanctuary of session into into everyday life. And the title of this book, uh, the title of this, uh, uh, might become a book. (laughs) The title of this talk is The Courage to Practice the Precepts. The Courage to Practice the Precepts. Dharma practice can be seen in simple terms to be made up of three aspects. Um, Mindfulness or meditation um, and uh, the precepts, uh, which are moral guidelines, uh, not commandments but guidelines, and insight. And the three of those together and, and the synergy of those three things working together move us towards um, realisation or a transformation in the way that we experience our life. And to go into each of them a little bit, mindfulness mindfulness can be seen like in its secular sense the benefit is that it can calm you and it can help regulate your emotions and it can help increase your distress tolerance um, and it can lead to having a, a friendlier relationship to yourself. And that, that's good to do. But you put it, mindfulness, all of that happens in the Dharma too. But really what the point of practising mindfulness is within a Dharma context is to unravel the, uh, unravel the, uh, the restraint on you of grasping an aversion. To see so clearly into that dynamic working that we, we, as Rinzai said, we learn to let go. Uh, We learn to um, just to let whatever needs to arise arise without expecting or trying to make it do so, and letting go, not holding, not gripping onto experience. Mindfulness is practicing in sasin, in the Dharma with that fundamental view in mind. Um, The precepts, and I'll go through them again to remind you of them, but the precepts taken as a whole are really an extension of mindfulness. So if you're aware of your own grasping and aversion or you're aware of your own emotions and thoughts and body sensations, it's a kind of an internal mindful experience. Um, but the precepts um, are really extending that in the way that we're actually mindful of the way that we relate to others. It's about others, not just about me. Mm-hmm. And that, that brings a whole different dimension. And others could be not just other human beings, but other, other animals, you know, other, other forms of life. Um, Insight could be seen as um, 
in a sense it's the fruit that comes out of practicing mindfulness and the precepts and what emerges out of that is that we have um, some experience whether it's small or large but a growing experience of interbeing mm-hmm. of no separate self that we're here and we can experience aloneness but we're, we're connected with everything in the world at the same time and that can grow and grow and deepen as our practice deepens so they're the three aspects of it that come together and I've, I've said this a few times before um, if you practice just mindfulness if that's all you do well, you have a third of a practice. Mm-hmm. If you practice mindfulness and the precepts, you have two thirds of a practice. And if you do all of that with the aspiration to see through the, the, um, the illusion of a separate self and experience into being in the world, when you've got three out of three, mm-hmm. they're all working together. And to use them, a metaphor, a medical metaphor, just to highlight this, is imagine someone found out that they had lung cancer, serious lung cancer, and they go, say, to a naturopath, you know, can you help me with my diet so I've got a wholesome diet and not an unwholesome one and maybe take some herbs and vitamins too so it can improve my immune system and I can fight the cancer. And okay, they do that, and the naturopath helps them to do that. Um, and the naturopath says, is there anything else you're doing in your life that might impact, do you know, on your ability to get better? Oh, yeah, I smoke. Yeah, well, it'd be a good idea to give up the smoking. Oh, I don't want to give up the smoking. No, I want to keep smoking. I just want to, you know, take all the pills and, you know, the herbs and so on. I don't want to give up smoking. Well, someone like that is not really giving themselves a good chance to heal, are they? And the same applies with mindfulness in the precepts. Yes, mindfulness is a wholesome thing to do, um, but if you don't include a mindfulness of others in the way that you relate to others in a way which is essentially um, non-violent and non-egotistical, then you're not setting up the conditions through which insight can occur. You've got half of it. And these things kind of work in a a circular loop. Uh, If you practice mindfulness, there's a likelihood that you'll go out into the world and through being kind to yourself and uh, better regulated and not as reactive or egocentric, that, that that may impact on you being... Um, naturally kinder in the way that you relate to others. Um, And then the other way, to go the other way, if you practice the precepts in everyday life, then you live in harmony with life more and you live in harmony with other people and you're less likely to be caught up in rancorous conflicts and so on. And so your mind is more at rest. So if you practice the precepts and then you sit down to do zazen, your mind's more harmonious to, to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that enhances the zazen. But if, you, if, you're doing, if you're just doing zazen and you're not applying this other aspect in every day life, you'll come to zazen with a whole lot of restlessness in your mind. 
and disharmony in your mind and it's harder to settle. So they, they all go together. Now, to go through the precepts with you again, and just remind everyone of them, and this is Norman Fisher's version. Um, Norman is a, a well-known um, Soto priest in um, San Francisco, um, who I haven't had the pleasure to meet, but I'd really love to. Um, the way he words them is he puts the negative and then the positive. So the first one is not to kill, but to nurture life. Not to steal, but to receive what is offered as a gift. Not to misuse sexuality, but to be caring and faithful in relationships. Not to lie, but to be truthful. Not to intoxicate with substances or doctrines. Doctrines, isms, all isms. Not to intoxicate with substances or doctrines, but to promote clarity and awareness. Not to speak of others' faults, um, but to speak out of loving kindness. Not to praise the self at the expense of others, but to be modest. Not to be possessive of anything, but to be generous. Not to harbour anger, but to forgive. And the last one, not to do anything to diminish the three treasures, but to support and nurture them. The three treasures being the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. But with this last one, I'd like to expand that beyond Buddhism to um, uh, don't do anything to diminish the sacred, whatever that might be, but to support and nurture it. If we practice the precepts, it's a journey of going to egocentricity to a healthy humility. It's a journey of going from indifference or resentment to compassion. And it's also a journey of fear into courage. And that's the focus I want to put on this talk in particular and go into a little bit more. Um, as human beings, um, we have a need to belong. It's just inherent in most mammals, really, the evolutionary thing, because we get by by being in groups and families and tribes and so on. So it's very important, it's ingrained in us that we want to belong. Um, and there's a positive side to that in terms of connectedness, but there can be a, a very negative side to that in terms of just being part of a um, conformist herd mentality. Mm -hmm. just, just sort of automatically conforms to norms without ever questioning them at all. Um, or to fads, you know, or hysterical kind of mass hysteria when it occurs. Um, and so it, it takes courage to actually, um, it, it's, 
it takes courage to, to stand with integrity, you know, and, and to risk not belonging to a group when you actually don't go along with the group behaviour that you think is unwholesome or inappropriate. And, and let's look at some, just some examples of that from, from everyday life, you know, around um, male and female relationships, for instance. Say you're with a group of guys and um, someone's telling sexist jokes about women. Um, if you're not getting caught up in criticising the faults of others or praising yourself at the expense of others, as jokes can often do, then you don't tell the jokes and you don't laugh at them. You know, you don't give energy to it. You know, and because, and you risk not being one of the boys. But that's the courage not to do that. Or the reverse of it. You know, if you're a woman in a group of women and the women are making sexist jokes about men, you know, and you make the jokes or you laugh at them, then you contribute to some kind of disharmony in the life so that you can demonstrate you belong to the sisterhood. It doesn't matter which gender it is. It's the same from a Dharma point of view. It's the same kind of, creates the same kind of disharmony. And you can apply that to all kinds of situations, whether you're part of a majority group or a minority group. And from a Dharma point of view, those same principles of um, maintaining harmony in a constructive way uh, are at the essence of it. <clears throat> so there's a courage also not just to... the courage not just to... Um, go along with things, um, just to belong mm-hmm. and fear rejection. There's also the courage, as we were relating to yesterday at some point too, um, about the courage to be vulnerable rather than hiding behind anger. Mm-hmm. That takes courage. You know, say if you've been hurt by an experience, or feel sad about an experience and, and you don't want to show those vulnerable feelings and you just have a wall of quiet anger or, or loud anger, you know, to stop other people coming close to you and seeing that vulnerability, um, then it takes courage to show that. And often showing vulnerability rather than power, as we talked about yesterday, it's often a far, far more skillful way to break through conflict right? and then to belong in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way. Um, there's also the courage to admit that you were wrong when you've made a mistake. Um, I noticed on um, one of my uh, friends and colleagues' coffee cups the other day when we were having a, a meeting together on the coffee cup it said, admit when you're wrong and shut up when you're right. <laughs> and the words actually come from um, uh, John, a man called John Gottman, who's a psychologist, who's a, a, a prominent couple therapist. That's a good one. Should have it all on all of our coffee cups. It's right? a reminder. Being individuated, not just uh, going along with a herd kind of instinct, 
um, is not the same as egotism. That one doesn't equal the other. Um, if you practice Zen and you practice mindfulness and the precepts, you actually will become more individuated or you become more differentiated in the, in the sense that you're grounded in your own experience of what life is um, rather than being caught up in distortions of, of reality. Mm-hmm. And you're much more able to, um, to just be in your own aloneness in the world because the, the nature of our existence in the world is that we have the experience of being alone and we have the experience of being connected at the same time. And that sounds like a contradiction, but that's, that's the nature of our experience. Um, it's true there in the, the teachings of the Buddha, you know, it was said of the, the Buddha in his awakening that he's alone and sacred, alone and sacred. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's comfortable, he, he recognises the Buddha nature of his own aloneness in the world and the Buddha nature of all beings. They coexist. One of the characteristics of modern life um, that we see, like in public discourse, in the media, also in more personal relationships and so on, it's been commented on by social commentators, is that the increase of self-righteousness in public debate and so on around various issues of morality and values and politics and so on. And I just want to look at that a little more closely as well. Um, Because I suppose if you take up the precepts, there's a risk that you could become self-righteous, couldn't you? You could think that you're morally superior to everyone else. Um, and then take a self-righteous position. It's a trap you could fall into. Um, but if you're really practicing with the precepts and like in your mindfulness practice, it's a journey of self-honesty, not just a journey of self-compassion, but you're like a mirror reflecting what's there in your experience, not just being kind about it. Then, then you will you will cover all all the negative aspects of humanity in yourself at some point in time, resentment, small-mindedness, pettiness. You'll you'll see it there for yourself, you know. And you can bring kindness to you, to the fact that you're experiencing that and suffering that, but you see it. You know, and you're not you're not denying it, not in denial about it. If you're in touch with that, then that's the antidote to being self-righteous. You know, like I said yesterday, you become a a fully signed up member of the Flawed Humanity Club when you do the precepts. And so when you're face to face with someone else or you're in dialogue with someone else, you share the the same humanity as everyone else. You're not superior. However, I need to say a little bit more about that because I think in, in human experience and human relationships, um, sometimes people are wiser than others, mm-hmm. and it's not just a flattened, a flattened hierarchy where everything is the same. Some people are wiser than other people, 
And I'll give you an example from, um, from everyday life. I, as you know, I, d I don't have children, but um, parents often, you know, are wiser than children, you know, and they have to guide children in various ways. There is a hierarchy. Um, I remember once taking my nephew to um, Luna Park when he was about 12, it was just me and him, and he got caught up there in, in throwing his money away into this kind of machine. It was kind of like a gambling experience, you know. And he was suck, really sucked in and really trying to win this prize. And, um, and I let it go on a little bit and then I could say, whoa. And, and then um, I, I took some um, firm Uncle Jeff um, action and quite firmly intervened to stop him, you know. So that he could spend his money on all the rides and have a much better time. You know, he's just going to waste it, you know. <laughs> right? so, so I had more wisdom than him at that point in time. And I used my, um, my parental authority to intervene. And um, I, at some later point, I went back and told my sister, his mother, about what happened. And my sister's got a, a rather wicked sense of humour and she said, that must have been very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes we are wiser in the situation. It's not always a flattened hierarchy. I've told this story too, this Zen story, but it, it, it's a good story worth telling again about this issue, about a, um, a Zen abbot in a temple um, that was out in the forest and um, the monks used to let the deer come in and graze on the grass within the monastery walls and uh, thought it was an act of loving kindness, you know, to allow them to get to this food. And, and then the Zen teacher was not happy about this and took some action and he shooed all of the deer out into the forest again. Um, and the monks were very angry with him. Do you know, like, what kind of a Zen teacher are you? You've got no compassion for these deers. Do you know they just want to eat? So he, he risked, he was courageous, he risked um, inflaming the ire of the monks and they're not respecting him as a teacher in doing this. And what he said is that if you let them in here, you're, you're kind, you're not going to harm them, but they're going to think that it's safe to be around human beings and then they'll be easy prey for the hunters. So get them out of here so that they've got a better chance of surviving. Mm -hmm. So it's an example of having a short-term view and a long-term view. You know, and sometimes, often, the longer-term view is the wiser view. Mm -hmm. And so that's the challenge you know, if, you, if you take up a practice like this. That it's not just a flattened hierarchy that everything's the same. Sometimes we, 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 we back ourselves and we feel like we're in a wiser position. And then often we don't know either. Sometimes we're, not, we're also in a moral dilemma. There's lots of moral dilemmas in life where we have no certainty about what's the right way ahead. We just, we just have to make a choice and hope that we're making the wisest decision that we can. But we don't live in a world of absolute moral certainty. And it's worthwhile remembering, coming back to the, the issue of self-righteousness, that uh, 
the here and now present moment reality of sensory experience or what we describe as um, suchness or life as it is or the absolute in Zen, that, that has an absolute quality about it. But all kind of human values, um, which vary across different families and different cultures and so on, they're, they're basically human mental constructions. And um, as, mu as much as we might think they're noble ideas or no not noble ideas, they're human constructions of the way we think life can be lived or how it should be lived. And um, we need to remember that they're just mental constructions. They're things that human beings have made up arbitrarily often. And when we become self-righteous, we, we mistake the relative world for the absolute world. We think that those mental constructions that we have attached to or we believe in, we think they're absolutely true. And that's what leads to self-righteousness. But none of those things have any absolute value. They're all in the relative world. And we make choices. You know, we, and, and there may be, may be choices as human beings based on values. We need values. Just can't rely on science. We don't get values from science. We need values. But we choose the values. Human beings chose them. And so therefore in, in Buddhism, um, you don't have a pope saying that abortion is bad or sex before marriage is bad or whatever. Um, that turns it into an absolute across all situations. The precepts are guidelines and, and they need to be used intelligently with common sense and compassionately according to the context of every situation. Then you're not, you're not confusing with some absolute right and wrong morality, which is very often very ham-fisted you know, and can do harm. So there's no, there's no moral certainty uh, with these precepts. Um, they're just guidelines. And it's the, the wisdom and, and the compassion that we develop along with those guidelines that will guide our behaviour. So as we go back into the everyday world of, you know, work and play and families, etc. Um, it's important to consider this, this um, precept dimension of our lives. And as I'm emphasising here, it's, uh, it's essentially an act of courage to take that up. Thank you.